You cannot conceptualize Islamic thought without Shiism, without Ismailism, because much of the development of Islamic thought is dialogical. There are debates taking place. So if you are looking at just Sunni thought as it's uh, transmitted, then you're missing a leg on the stool. Welcome to the Harvard Islamica podcast. I'm Mariam Kazmi. And I'm Harry Bastramajan. We're happy to be joined today by Dr. Shiraz Hajiani, the Awalid bin Talal Postdoctoral Fellow in Islamic Studies at Harvard University and Research Associate in Transcendence and Transformation at the Center for the Study of World Religions at Harvard Divinity School. Shiraz completed his PhD in 2018 at the University of Chicago with his dissertation, Reconstructing Alamut, the new approaches to the study of the Qiyama and the Nazari polity in Iran. Welcome, Shiraz. Thank you, Harry. Thank you, Mariam. It's delightful to be here. It's great having you here. So to get started, we would love to hear about your background and how you came to the study of the Nazari-Ismaili polity in Alamut. Uh, let me start by saying thank you to the Al-Walid program uh, for uh, this postdoctoral fellowship, which has allowed me to do the work uh, that we'll discuss, and uh, the Transcendence and Transformation uh, Initiative at CSWR, which has been a wonderful home for me to do uh, some amazing work and interact with uh, uh, some esteemed colleagues. So uh, uh, that said... Um, my my background. Um, I have a degree in chemistry, <laughs> and uh, while I was at London University, I had the opportunity of uh, branching out, and I went and did a what would be considered in America a, a minor in uh, uh, Islamic studies, uh, the Fatimids in particular. And I studied with one of the leading scholars uh, in the field. Uh, and about 15 years uh, after graduating, I came back to uh, the academy. I started at the Harvard Divinity School and did a master's in theological studies and ended up uh, at Chicago for my doctoral work. Uh, and uh, that's where the story uh, of uh, the research begins. So that's my kind of academic resume, if you will. Um, to get us started, can you can you share with us uh, a little bit about the Nazari Ismailis? Uh, who are they, um, and um, you know how was it that uh, the Nazari polity in Alamut? Um, uh, was founded, and, and what is its significance in Ismaili history? Mm -hmm. Today, uh, the Ismailis probably number uh, about five to six million. Um, the majority of the Ismailis, the second largest uh, uh, Shi community in the world, are uh, followers of the Aga Khan, and that's the Nizari line. Uh, and these differences occur because of uh, succession issues, uh, but if we now jump back in time, while today 4 million, 5 million out of, or 6 million out of uh, a billion and a half Muslims, in the past, that's not necessarily so. 
the time period that I look at um, from about the 10th century is uh, the 10th to the 11th centuries are regarded as the Shi centuries. Mm-hmm. And what was happening at that time. At that time, the Ismaili Dawa, which is the Ismailis are a Shi'i community. They uh, followed uh, the line from Ali as the first Imam and on down. There was a schism in 765 at the death of the Imam Jafar al-Sadiq, which led to the two major Shi'i communities, the Ismailis and then the Ethnoshris. The Ethnoshris uh, followed a different line of succession and they have 12 imams, hence Ethnoshir, Ethnoshri. And the Ismaili line, uh, basically, they went um, into concealment. The, the Dawa, the Imamate, and the communities were in concealment until 909. In 909, the Fatimid Empire was established in what is today Tunisia. And at its height, the Fatimid Empire ruled by the Imam, who was also regarded as, as the Caliph. The Fatimid Caliphate extended from the shores of the Atlantic in North Africa um, all the way uh, to uh, Syria, to uh, the the two holy cities, Mecca, Medina, the Hejaz, and they even had for uh, for a while they even had a uh, um, an area of Punjab, uh, Multan area that was uh, under their suzerainty. And in 1058, they also took over Baghdad. So the Fatimid Empire was able to establish Shiism, was able to establish Ismailism as a uh, significant um, belief system. And of course, they were opposed by the Abbasids from Baghdad and the Umayyads out of Spain. In 1095, the Caliph al-Mustansir, the Imam Caliph al-Mustansir passed away and there was a succession crisis. Mm-hmm. Uh, the oldest son was Nizar. Apparently, uh, al-Mustansir, who ruled for over 60 years, um, had, uh, I think, something in the region of 17 sons. And the youngest of them was enthroned by the military governor and vizier, the prime minister. Nizar also was declared caliph, but not in Cairo, which was the capital of the Fatimids, but in Alexandria. And the two groups went into conflict. Uh, there were some victories for the Nizari's supporters of Nizar initially. Eventually, uh, Nizar's uh, group was defeated. And according to the uh, historical uh, records, uh, some of the chronicles state that he was killed. Uh, he was uh, immured. Uh, mm. uh, basically, he was put into a room and the door was walled off. Mm. Uh, so that's what happens in in Cairo, but in Iran, uh, without any known exceptions, uh, the Ismaili Dawa in Iran, which was uh, in Abbasid territory, uh, lock, stock, and barrel went for Nizar, and they remained loyal to Nizar, expecting a descendant of Nizar to emerge out of concealment uh, and to take up the leadership of the community uh, as the imam. In the meanwhile, we had various dais who led the communities. 
and the preeminent is uh, one of the people who I focus on was Hassan Sabah. He founded the polity at Alamut. He acquired the the castle of Alamut, and uh, that's the beginning of the Nizari Ismaili interpretation of Islam. Mm. Thank you. Thank you. So, what are some of the main challenges in studying early Nizari Ismaili history, and how do you seek to address them in your research? Um, if you were to, for instance, uh, go and look up uh, the Battle of uh, Wounded Knee, you'd find at least 400 hits on JSTOR. Uh, there are, of course, several uh, movies made about Custer's Last Stand. Mm-hmm. Uh, in And that was one battle, one day, a few hours, where 200 of uh, the U.S. Army, uh, 200 soldiers were were killed by a force of 3,000 Native uh, Americans. And the story has been told up until the 1970s from the view of the American perspective, if you will, not the American uh, Native Americans. It's only in the 1970s that a grandson of Sitting Bull started writing the the history from uh, the oral inherited history um, and writing it now uh, as accessible to us. So if we look at this situation, what happens is in 1256, the Nizari polity was uh, annihilated by the Mongols. And during this process of dismantling of the fortress of Alamut, one of the uh, ministers, Atamalik Javani, is, uh, uh, according to his own uh, writing, went into the library at Alamut, which uh, is famed. Um, and he, he found there various scientific in- instruments. He found uh, multiple copies of the Quran and, and uh, uh, various other holy texts. And he says that they had intermingled with the holy texts uh, their false beliefs. Mm. So he took for the treasury, the Mongol treasury, he took the Sargazashta Sayyidina, the biography of our master, our master being Hassan Sabah. And, and then he torched the rest of the library. So what we have is in 1260, he completed his uh, uh, Tariqa Jahangisha, the history of the world conqueror. And in that, he has a section on the Ismailis, the Fatimids and the Nizaris. And this is the first complete history that is available to us. Subsequently, two other histories based on the sources that potentially were acquired at Alamut were written. Rashiduddin Fazlullah, who was a prime minister of the Mongols, he was uh, executed in the 13 teens, uh, 1318. He wrote the Jamit Tawarik, which is regarded as a, a, one of the earliest universal histories. And in this history of the Mongols, of the Indians, of the Jews, of the Europeans, he also included a uh, volume on uh, the Ismailis. 
again, prior to the Fatimid period, the Fatimid period, and the Nizaris. And one of his research, this must have been a very busy vizier, um, he had a team of researchers, uh, and one of the researchers on his team, uh, uh, Kashani, he also wrote a history in which he included a history of uh, the Ismailis, both Fatimid and Nizari. So we have three um, three chronicles that are extremely important because what they did is they used the sources that they, they acquired at Alamut. Part of my challenge has been to look at these sources and uh, analyze them at what I call DNA, double narrative an mm-hmm. analysis level, uh, because they wrote in the Persian historical writing paradigms in which apparently uh, the Ismailis were construed as her- uh, heretics. This was almost advice literature for uh, uh, the patrons. The historian basically wrote that if the ruler did not stamp out heresy, then his dynasty would uh, lose God's favor and somebody else would come and, uh, and, and replace. Another, another dynasty would come and replace them. So writing within this historical paradigm, um, they had extracted from Dawa literature. What was this Dawa literature? It was a totally different genre. It wasn't historical writing per se. It was something that was written for the study amongst uh, um, the dais, the trainees, if you will, and community members, how to understand uh, what their faith was, how to, uh, um, it, how to basically conceptualize the cosmos and their place in, in the cosmos. And within this, we have biographical uh, mentions because there's a hagiographical construction of sacred individuals. So Hassan al-Sabah was one of these individuals, and the Sargazesta Sayyidina was probably written in that uh, manner. It has not surfaced yet. I'm hopeful that the burnt library trope is just that, that there were other libraries. And uh, one day somebody will find the text and say, aha, this is the Sargosas. Several people have done that, but the results have been unsatisfactory. So the challenge is we have three chronicles that were based on Nizari sources. Then we have a couple of other chronicles that the authors were familiar with the Nizaris, either having traded with them or having diplomatic relations. And then we have writings from distance, distance geographically and distance in time. But most of this writing that comes down to us is written by Sunnis. Mm. And uh, the Sunni construction, as I mentioned, uh, was uh, denigrating but also uh, demonizing. And so we have the challenge of saying, okay, let's do a forensic analysis of this, take off the first layer of uh, the narrative, and look at the frameworks in which uh, um, these Persian historical writers and Arabic historical writers were writing, and then try and look at the fragments of the Nizari writing that's available and analyze that to try and get 
at least an idea of what past actuality might have been in the analysis of the authors of the time. Mm. You already started uh, this discussion on Hassan al-Saba, uh, and, and he is the uh, you know the topic of your first book, book project, The Life and Times of Our Master. Um, could you expand on some of these sources you mentioned these three um the three accounts can you can you discuss some of the the challenges with these sources and also uh, could you touch on uh, accounts of conversion mm-hmm. uh you know in 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 what what do these accounts uh, have to say uh, about conversion to nizari ismailism and and how do you then sort of interpret these narratives within this context mm-hmm. So if I could tie the wounded knee uh, example that Mm. I gave you, um, over 300, uh, 400 uh, mentions in JSTOR, if you just put (laughs) in that battle. We have literally four major studies on the Nazari Ismailis. The first that was done at University of Chicago uh, by Marshall Hodgson, and uh, his book was titled, uh, and he regretted this uh, uh, a decade later, but his book was titled The Order of the Assassins. His dissertation completed in 1951, was published in 1955, and the subtitle was A Struggle Against the Islamic World. So you can mm-hmm. see the framing of how this was done. Um, Another work was written by uh, Vladimir Ivanov. According to Marshall Hodgson, Vladimir Ivanov, who uh, was a a Russian scholar and after the uh, Soviet Revolution remained in Iran and then made his way to India, uh, is considered to be the father of Ismaili studies, modern Ismaili studies. He collected resources, uh, manuscripts, and uh, made uh, several texts uh, available in in editions and translations and has written uh, a large uh, body of writing. The important text about the Nizaris, I think, is Alamut al-Lamasar, Two Strongholds. Again, we're talking about conflictual war, uh, warring uh, issues. The third study has been done by uh, Bernard Lewis. Uh, Bernard Lewis had started his work uh, studying uh, the origin uh, and published the origins of uh, Ismailism, uh, I think, way back in the 40s. In 1967, he published uh, The Assassins, uh, a radical sect. Okay, so you can see the construction that's taking place. Finally, the fourth major work is part of uh, a massive volume produced by Farhad Daftari in which he synthesizes essentially all the writing that had uh, uh, had been uh, done in sources as well as in uh, modern Western academic writing into his Ismailis, their history and uh, and, uh, thought. So there are only four books, major books in the English language on this topic. Others are derivative. So you'll find lots of writing about the assassins and Mm -hmm. the legends of the assassins and so on. Hassan al-Sabba as the individual is very interesting. In the Chronicles, we have his biography or snippets of his biography. Uh, he might have been born somewhere around uh, the 
fifties, the mid ten fifties. And he says that from the age of seven, I wanted to be a scholar of religion. Hmm. And around 17, he was looking here and there for uh, where truth can be found. And in his and uh, the town of his birth, Ray, which is present-day Tehran in Iran, he came across an Ismaili da'i. Uh, Dai Summoner, somebody who uh, calls to, uh, in this case, the, the Ismaili Dawa. Amir Adharab, this person who he met, challenged his beliefs. The chronicles tell us that he told us his uh, faith was that of his father's. He was an ethnoshri. And Amir Adharab challenged him. And in these discussions, um, they got into debates and arguments. But while he was defending his perspectives, he was seeing the light of what the Dai was uh, speaking to him. And then uh, this Dai left Ray. He, his name is Darab. He was a minter. Mm-hmm. So his assignment in Ray might have uh, terminated and he'd gone somewhere else looking for work. In this time, he fell sick. So this is part of the conversion narrative mm-hmm. that, uh, uh, that's the standard narrative. He fell sick and he, he says that in their books, we don't know what the books are. He found evidence supporting the legitimacy of the Ismaili Imams. And he uh, he noted that the the imamate is based on nas, a uh, process of designation, uh, a very important doctrine in Shiism, and uh, there is a series of succession. But I don't know who they are. He says at this moment. But he'd been preached to by. A dai who was preaching in the name of the Fatimid Caliph Al Mustansir. Mm-hmm. So there is some ambiguity here, which I try and exploit and explore and see what are the layers. So uh, while he's in this absence of Amir Adarab, he falls sick. And then he comes to a conclusion that, my gosh, this is the truth. And if I am to die, I will die not having known the truth. So when he gets better, he reaches out to another Dai and is uh, is shown the intricacies of faith. And then he goes to another Dai. So we're looking at a hierarchy. He's going up the hierarchy of Dais, if you will. And he reaches uh, out to this Dai, Mumin, Mumin meaning believer, and asks for the administration of the oath, the oath of allegiance to the imam. The chronicles state that uh, the diary responds, how can I, who am just a believer, um, administer the oath to you, who are Hassan, meaning good? So it's a play on the names mm-hmm. uh, and the words. Clearly, the biographer of Hassan al-Sabah was elevating this new convert to be higher than the uh, high official of the Dawah. Mm-hmm. So eventually, uh, and you know, in things Persian, uh, or, or uh, this is very common throughout Asia, you always decline, and mm. and there's that 
urging and you have to do it three times <laughs> so <laughs> third time lucky he was administered the oath and now he is living in ray in iran and in abbasid domains abbasids are sunni but he gives allegiance to the fatimid imam caliph who is an ismaili shi and rules the polity that is opposed to the abbasids so you can see the complexities of how uh, the communities would have lived and this is a term um uh, uh, John Woods, uh, whom you know very well, Harry, uh, John Woods uh, coined a term or used a term which, uh, which has existed in study of Christianity, but as uh, uh, his students have uh, followed up and used it a lot, is confessional ambiguity. Mm -hmm. That these communities, communities were existing in a state of confessional ambiguity. I developed that a little bit further. And um, when I was last talking to John, we were saying, not quite satisfactory, but we've got to keep working at it. I state that confessional ambiguity is from the scholarly perspective, analyzing the past. But these people were living in confessional fluidity, mm -hmm. where outwardly they would manifest whatever their religious beliefs and practices were, but uh, internally uh, practicing takia dissimulation, a concept of uh, common in Shiism, they would practice their true faith. They would uh, adhere to their true faith. So in this case, the communities of Ismailis who were widespread in Iran, Central Asia, uh, Iraq, and parts of India as well, uh, outside of the f direct Fatimid domains, um, they practiced in this context of uh, um, confessional fluidity. So Hassan exists in that. That's the standard narrative of how he uh, becomes Ismaili. Mm -hmm. And we're talking about possibly the 1070s. Richard Bulliard from Columbia in the 1970s, before the computer age, uh, studying uh, the, the uh, legal scholars in Nishapur, was able to uh, establish that by about the 900s, Iran had become over 50% uh, Muslim. So there was Zoroastrians, some Christians, some Jews, and the majority now was tending towards being Muslim. So here the conversion is telling us that it's not necessarily uh, going from uh, one faith to another faith, but this is an intra-faith uh, adoption. And, you know, in modern study of religion, the idea of conversion has been problematized and uh, looked at in different ways. So it's not just a, uh, a switch that you flip. Mm -hmm. and you go from one to the other, but it's a gradual process. So this standard narrative very clearly demarcates for us a gradual process through which Hassan Sabah went through. And more importantly, it also gives us an understanding of the Khudud din the hierarchy of the Dawah that existed in Iran. So ultimately in uh, 1075, uh, the head of the Dawah, uh, Abdul Malik al Ibn Atash, who lived in Isfahan, had uh, escaped persecution there and come to Ray. And he favored Hassan al Sabah and deputized him. Uh, 
um, this term niabat, naeb, does not really exist in Ismaili hierarchies. So is this something that the chroniclers are inserting? Uh, We don't know. But what the end result is that he's raised up in the Dawah and when things get better in Isfahan, he accompanies him back to Isfahan and then he's sent to Cairo to the headquarters of the Ismaili uh, establishment, to the center of the Fatimid Caliphate, potentially to meet the imam. Um, So that's the standard narrative. He comes back and uh, carries out his mission. Within this narrative, I analyze a second narrative, what I call the miraculous narrative. Mm -hmm. So when we look at his sickness, when he was uh, separated from Amir al-Darrab. He is deathly sick, fearful that he will die. In Kashani, uh, rather than saying that when he got better, he went to another da'i and acquired the intricacies, uh, intricacies of the faith, he says that God wanted him, uh, God, uh, the, uh, this invokes a hadith in which it's, uh, it's said that if God wants to heal someone, he will change his blood to another blood and he'll change his breath to another breath. Mm. So this hadith is quoted and the, the chronicler states that it is during this moment that he attained the intricacies of faith. So the agent of this conversion is not a die, but is God. Mm. This narrative has not been noticed by anybody. Uh, uh, I pull it out of the text. And for me, what this implicates is this is a um, theological uh, construction that an average individual is now becoming sacralized, Mm. that he's going from uh, just a regular convert to becoming somebody who is who is grounded in the mysteries of the faith, in the knowledge of the faith, and has acquired gnosis, Mm. the knowledge of God, ma'rifa. So I I think this is a very important uh, uh, discovery that that I made. There's a third narrative, which I call the defection narrative. And this narrative uh, is known in the West because uh, when uh, the Rubaiyat of Omar Khayyam was uh, translated, the three schoolfellows story was picked out and and, uh, was in the preface. The three schoolfellows story goes that Hassan al-Sabah, along with Nizam al-Mulk, who was uh, a great vizier of the Saljuks, a very powerful vizier of the Saljuks, and uh, the poet uh, Omar Khayyam, were students together in a madrasa in Nishapur. And they made a blood oath that if any of them succeeds, they will help the other two to rise up. So the narrative goes on that Nizam al-Mulk attained this great high status of being the prime minister for uh, Alp Arslan initially and then Malaksha, the great uh, Saljuk rulers. And Omar Khayyam goes to him and says, hey, remember from childhood you promised? <laughs> and he says, take Nishapur, take Ray, whatever you want. And uh, Omar Khayyam says, no, I'm a lowly poet. I just need 
to to have a comfortable life. So he assigned, I think, something like 12,000 gold coins, dinars, from the revenues of Nishapur to him, and he was happy. Hassan Sabah hears about Nizam al-Mulk's good fate, and he goes and says, remember the promise that uh, you had made? And he tells him, you can have Isfahan or Ray. You know, the, the narratives are really... Uh, Interesting in this way. I mean, just imagine a prime minister minister offering the capital city. It's mm-hmm. not going to happen, but we've got to go flow with it. Hassan wasn't satisfied with that. He wanted a share of what Nizam al-Mulk had. So, grudgingly, he invites him into the entourage and brings him to the uh, the sultan, and he's appointed in 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 the uh, administration of the bureaucracy. Nizam al-Mulk has been in power for a while, and the ruler Malik Shah, for whom he was the tutor, is now feeling that uh, his tutor is a little bit too overbearing and maybe even corrupt. Mm. So he demands a um, an accounting of certain transactions, and Nizam al-Mulk responds, well, that might take a couple of years. And Hassan al-Sabah says, I can do it in 40 days. So Hassan was assigned. And sure enough, he had completed it. And on the day that he was going to present the reports to the sultan, Nizam al-Mulk had uh, their slaves divert each other. And he went and um, disarranged the report. So when Hassan al-Sabah goes to give the presentation, he's unable to give the evidence. The sultan becomes angry and seeing that uh, he was in jeopardy. The chronic, uh, this uh, narrative states that uh, Hassan escaped and joined the Ismailis. Mm. So this story has been told and the scholars have rejected it. They have rejected it because those three individuals could never have been in a madrasa at the same time. They lived in different places. They were of different ages. I asked the question, but whenever the history of the Nizaris is written, whether by uh, Nizaris or others, along with the biography that comes from the Sargajast, uh, the three school fellows, fellows narrative is accompanying. So why for 800 years have these two narratives been tied? And I started thinking, you know, who is it targeting? What is the purpose? And this leads me to two major conclusions that kind of uh, um, permeate through my work. One is, I postulate that this was written after Nizam al-Mulk was assassinated, possibly by the Nizaris, but there's collusion from others. And uh, 34 days later, the, the uh, uh, Sultan Malik Shah passed away in very uh, questionable circumstances, possibly poisoned. There was tumult, and factions uh, supporting his sons were uh, vying for power. His oldest son at the time, Berkiaruk, was kind of sidelined because Malikshah's wife, uh, Tarkan Khatun, was very powerful, and she had brought uh, a lot of power and wealth to uh, and place her infant son on the throne. 
I postulated that this is trying to reach out to Berkeruk. The reason why is that he was surrounded by the sons of Nizam al-Mulk and uh, the supporters of Nizam al-Mulk. And possibly this text is saying, remember Nizam al-Mulk was a power-hungry, corrupt individual. And these ministers of yours are leading you astray. To the point that when we read the Chronicles, um, there is a strong alliance at times with uh, Berkaruk and Berkaruk's Berkaruk's commanders. uh, One in particular fields 5,000 Ismaili soldiers in favor of Berkaruk. The text says, Berkaruk du stare Rafikan bud. Rafikan meaning the Ismailis, the brothers, the comrades, if you will. And the term du star is used. Du star in regular Persian, du stashtan is to love. So this text says, Berkaruk loved the Nizaris. And that's what led me to this conclusion that this was propaganda mm. to reach out and ally or create relations with Berkaruk. And then it just has a life of its own uh, all the way to uh, the translation of Omar Khayyam in the 19th century. And it's still being written today in the same vein that, oh, look, Hassan al-Sabah went to school with the great Nizam al-Mulk and with the great poet Omar Khayyam. But the narrative had different purposes. So one of the things that I do in this double-layer analysis is go to the original source, that we ha- uh, fragments that we have, and look at what was the purpose of it. A second purpose that I think was there is that the head of the Dawah in Isfahan, Abdul Malik ibn Atash, his son probably succeeded him. And Hassan al-Sabah's camp is saying, well, those guys achieved nothing. Look at Hassan. He's a powerful individual. And at that time, he already had the fortress of Alamut mm-hmm. and was expanding uh, 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 the, the Ismaili polity, the Nizar Ismaili polity. Uh, so the conversion narratives are fascinating in this way that uh, they give us multiple layers of understanding of what was going on. Um, the standard narrative gives us the understanding of the hierarchy of the Dawah and how it operated. The miraculous uh, uh, narrative gives us a sort of theological understanding of uh, the individual Hassan al-Sabah and his rise from a convert to a high official of the Dawa. And this uh, uh, defection narrative gives us some understandings of intrafactional issues between the Nizaris as well as uh, relations with the Saljuks. Long answer, but it's a fascinating topic for me, as you can see. I'm just curious, you know, this... These competing narratives, I, I just wonder, you know, it it almost sounds like a, it's not the same, but similar to kind of a mirror for princess, you know? Absolutely. <laughs> you know, and, and uh, thinking about, you said propaganda, but also this is a period of time in Islamic history where there's not just in the region we're talking about, sort of the Iranian plateau into, you know, the northern Iraq and, and, and Anatolia, but also just across uh, the Islamicate societies, this is a period of a lot of tumult 
and you know going back to professor john woods's uh, point about uh, confessional ambiguity i mean it 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 speaks on uh, many different levels so it's fascinating to see how you were able to bring together and analyze these very very competing narratives it must have been a challenge yeah. um, it's a challenge and and i think it's it's an opening hmm. because uh, the the four major studies that i talked about and uh, whatever else that has been written, you know, in, in the 19th century and onwards, uh, the Ismailis and, uh, and and the Nizaris in particular are written in this conflictual sense, mm-hmm. that they were in conflict with A, the Saljuks and then the Mongols, and B, there was this theological conflict, constant conflict between the Sunnis and, uh, uh, and the Nizaris, mm-hmm. to the point that uh, when the Qiyama was enacted in 1164, um, the Nizaris turn away from the world, effectively, uh, abandoning uh, the, uh, the, you know, they consider themselves the chosen, the, the ones that are the saved, and the rest of the world is uh, um, cast to hell effectively mm-hmm. right uh, and in this in this transition you know uh, the the scholars have seen uh, a, a dialogical conflict if you will i i see it but i i want to look at the different components mm-hmm. so the interfactional uh, uh, competition and debates are important, and that's also happening amongst the Saljuks, and it is also happening amongst the Sunni ulama. So your point about you know the the tumult being there, and within this tumult there is uh, the writing of mirrors of princes. It is because the rulers are being called to justice and righteousness, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, and you have to say, why is this being written? Because there's a lack of justice mm-hmm. and righteousness amongst the rulers and uh, the ruling establishment. So uh, the writers are basically calling for that, and this may be, you, you have a very good point, that uh, the, school, uh, the three school fellows could be read as uh, part of the mirrors for princes. Mm-hmm. Mm. Thank you. Um, so, moving along in the history of Alamut, um, what was the event of the Qiyama, and what are different interpretations of this event? So, um, you know, in the in the process of uh, uh, acquiring the the fortress of Alamut, and then a series of other fortresses, the Ismaili polity was uh, expanding, meaning that uh, first of all, uh, conflict with uh, the Saljuks was significant, and it was significant because of the location of the, the fortresses. Um, I believe that the major challenge was trade, that they were on uh, um, or near uh, trade routes, so they could have choke points and control the trade, and that's why they were a major challenge. They were up in mountains, you know, uh, fortresses high up in mountains, very secure, um, there's not much um, agricultural wealth that could be acquired. So why were the Saljuks so vehement in, in opposition to them? Because of possible trade control. So the polity expands, um, their territory is expanding, but the territory expansion is also related to the expansion of the communities of followers. 
And the emphasis that Hassan Asaba had brought, and he he's uh, uh, doctrinally he's associated with the concept of talim, which is a Shi concept of the authority, uh, the interpretive authority of the Imam. And this had been perhaps how. Uh, the Nizari Dawas operating each one of these fortresses or regions uh, in in uh, northwestern Iran uh, uh, in the Caspian region and then in uh, um, the eastern regions present day borders of uh, Iran and Afghanistan as well as parts of Syria this was a large polity uh, at one point around 150 installations spread out through Abbasid domains. And you can imagine that each one of these regions had relative independence. While by about 1107, Hassan al-Saba had acquired supremacy, he dies in 1124, he and his successors were trying to contain divergence. They were trying to contain breaking away both politically, but more importantly, religious uh, uh, defections, if you will. There was an active Zaidi movement in the Caspian region. Uh, there were resurgent Zoroastrian movements throughout Iran. And the chronicles link this type of uh, uh, religious uh, tumult happening. And and the Ismailis basically were stamping out, the Nizari Ismailis were stamping out uh, these breakaway groups. In 1164, there is an event that is held in uh, the middle of the month of Ramadan. This is the Hijri calendar year 559. On the 17th of Ramadan, this is halfway through the, the month, um, at midday, the people around Alamut are gathered, and the ruler of Alamut, uh, third in succession after Hassan al-Sabah, mounts the pulpit and says, I have a message from the imam. He reads out a letter from the imam, believed to be the descendant of Nizar, who had been killed in Cairo. And he reads out this uh, uh, this uh, missive, this message, and after this message is uh, is read, the, all the gathered recite a two rakat prayer, which is uh, the festival prayer, the Eid prayer, and they break their fasts and have a major celebration. Subsequently, this was enacted again in eastern Iran in the fortress of Muminabad, and possibly also in Syria. And as I mentioned earlier, that uh, scholarship has looked at this moment as a turning away, that the Ismaili Dawa, feeling that the rest of society is not receptive, was saying, okay, we're done with you, and turning inward. And at this moment, Hassan effectively said that you are in the presence of God. It was a complete realignment theologically and cosmologically, if you will, that rather than awaiting resurrection at another time, you are at the Qiyamah. 
and this term Kiyama meaning resurrection has literally nothing to do with the resurrection described in the Quran. It has very little to do with the notions of the resurrection in Islamic thought up to, up until this time. So it is a a shift that is being made. Eventually, this ruler is recognized as the descendant of Nizar, as the Imam. It's the manifestation of uh, the Nizari Imamate. And from here on, uh, continuing on to present day, Nizaris are going to uh, look at a continuity of Imamate going back to Ali. So this is a major trans, uh, transformation in society. But if we look at the different layers, what's happening? There are competing authorities within the Nizari polity who might claim to be um, superior to others. And is it at this moment that this individual Hassan, who happens to be the ruler of the most important region uh, and the important fortress of Alamut, is he claiming supremacy overall? That's one. But in the declaration, he also says that, um, especially in the second declaration in Muminabad, um, the, the ruler of the fortress of Muminabad in eastern Iran um, says that whatever uh, the, the imam commands, Hassan al-Islam commands, that whatever I say is tantamount to what he says. And he is the imam, he is the da'i, the imam, the caliph. So were the Nizaris trying to establish a counter-caliphate? if you will, a Nizari caliphate. These are areas that have not been explored. And I'm kind of working with this area and saying, what were the multiple layers? Uh, the theological uh, aspect of it develops. And the way I approach it is looking at the different factions. So for since we don't have very detailed information, I at least bifurcate the Nizari community, and I say there was a group of people who were okay with the imam being concealed, and there was a group of people that desperately wanted a soteriological uh, um, salvific figure, somebody who would bring the community to salvation, bring them to uh, uh, out of this world of injustice and inequality. And so they were. Uh, they had pinned their hopes on the imam, and the name for this ruler, Hassan Allah Zikr Islam, Allah Zikr Islam, on whose mention be peace, is an epithet that is attached to the Messiah. Mm. Right. So the question that you're asking has a huge resonance in in this way that uh, you know imagine the Jewish communities and we have Benjamin of Tudela who passed through this area records that there were four villages in the Alamut area that were allied with the Nizaris so there were Jewish communities in this area so the expectation of the Messiah in Judaism the second coming of Christ amongst the uh, um, Christian communities and the expectation of the Sayashant in the Zoroastrian traditions. These are all informing the Islamicate notions of the Mahdi, of the Qaim, the rightly guided one, the resurrector. And the Ismailis are drawing on older, uh, the Nizaris in, in this moment are drawing on old Ismaili theology, old Ismaili cosmology. 
and they're constructing the imam to be the locus of bringing the community to the presence of God. So it's a very, very interesting bringing together of uh, religious, political, and uh, salvific uh uh, notions of authority. And this is something that will, that will resonate in other contexts. Ibn Arabi, who dies in 1240, comes close to claiming these types of roles. And particularly you, uh, Timur uh, claims himself to be the sahib e mm-hmm. the the master of the conjunction, that he is this uh, ruler who has this eschatological aspect you know, uh, the end of the world is considered nigh, and he is the ruler at this time. Uh, Suleiman the Magnific- Magnificent is also thought in that way, and various others. I think these are resonances of the construction that was done at Alamut in one way, shape, or form. So it's a it's a vast area that uh, needs three hundred books to be written on. <laughs> Okay, so this event of the Qiyamah is when um, Ismailism takes this antinomian turn and um, and when uh, Hassan al-Adhikr-Salam uh, declares himself to be the imam. Um, so can you talk a bit about this um, this treatise that you look at, the Hikayat-i Sayyid Nasir Khusro, um, and how does it uh, explain how the imam has manifested in Iran after um, going into concealment in Egypt? So let me just um, touch on the question. Okay. <laughs> okay? You said antinomian. Mm-hmm. So the chronicles, the three chronicles, um, they construct the Ismailis as, uh, generally as mulhid, heretic. And the event of the Qiyamah, for at least two of them, is the moment at which they went off the cliff, um, and they constructed as uh, this these events as antinomian and the community to be antinomian. What do we mean by antinomian? From whose perspective? Okay, nomos, uh, the law. Um, you know, they're coming from a perspective of uh, the Sharia, and even Juvaini, who is frothing at the mouth, anti. Uh, Ismaili, anti-Nizari, anti-Shi. In the last paragraph of uh, the account of Hassan al-Sabha, he says he adhered to the uh, to the norms of Islam, right? That he was diligently adherent to the Sharia, and so the the two successors. And then heresy begins in in full fledge. But what does that mean? From whose perspective? If we turn to the Nizari perspective, the nomos is the imam. The nomos is dictated by the imam. The sharia is something. There is no single interpretation of the sharia. Sharia is a body uh, of uh, laws that uh, uh, and practices that are uh, perceived to be from following the sunnah of the prophet. In the Shi'i conception, the imam is uh, the paramount authority who determines what the interpretation of the faith is according to the sunnah because they're the protectors of the sunnah in Shi'i in thought. So 
while the construction was that this is antinomian, from the perspective of the Nizaris, this is absolute, complete adherence to the nomos. It is just a look beyond the zahir, the outer, the exoteric, to the batin, the inner, the esoteric, and looking at the inner realities and being aware of them. So let's just think of uh, that one statement that I made, that it is said that Hassan al-Zikr uh, al brought his community to the presence of God. What does that mean? The later doctrinal writing uh, even comments on this. For instance, the five times prayer. Um, it is not Quranic. It is an interpretation of the sunnah of the prophet that uh, there is five times prayer. But these commentators are going to say, so what if you pray five times a day? Then what? Do you just go back to a state of heathenism? Mm. You know, you go back to your shop and and carry out your trade. They're saying that this notion that uh, uh, that is central to the teachings of the Kiyama is that you're in the presence of God. You know, if you're in the presence of God, that is 24-7, 365. It's a, it's a deepening of the awareness. It's that notion of taqwa that is so popular in, in Sufi thought. It's that God-centricism, as Professor Ali Asani talks about. Okay. So, so it's that shift of awareness from the worldly and that separation of, well, this is my religious duty, and then there's the world, to saying, no, it's a continuum, that we are part of this cosmological continuum in which um, you have to see yourself within... Um, not just the cosmos, but within this this notion of creation and more. You know, in the beginning, what was there? What was there before the beginning? So this is that contemplation of taking us beyond that uh, 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 that barrier that we have of our physicality. So one, the the text that I uh, that I found, uh, I began my research uh, with one word. And this one word was from the biography of Hassan al-Sabah, that uh, in the first line they give his genealogy, his line about seven generations, that he claimed descent from the Himyari rulers of Yemen. And then there's a line which puzzled me. There was a word when I started translating uh, the the, the Jama Tawarik section on, on the Ismailis and the Nizaris, it puzzled me for several weeks. It was the word Nakhalaf. If you look it up in the dictionary, it says degenerate. And most scholars have basically looked up, uh, uh, at it this way. There's a sentence. Um, Hassan Sabah says, I'd prefer to be a loyal servant of the Imam rather than a Nakhalaf son of the Imam. What does this nakalaf mean? So if you translate it the way scholars have done it for 150 years, a degenerate son of the imam. I, when I was translating, John, had, John Woods had started me uh, as an assignment. For uh, I'd asked him, so for my seminar paper, is it okay for me to translate 20 pages of the Jamithawarak section of uh, the Nizaris? He says, why don't you do the whole thing? 
And I said, do you think I can? He says, do you think you can? I had two years of Persian at the time. So I'm using these uh, Persian English dictionaries and they're just not satisfactory. So I make my way to Dekhoda, which is the major Persian dictionary. The translation of Nakhalaf is unsatisfactory. Then I go to the Arabic, the root Khalafa. Khalafa, from which we get Caliph, deputy successor. And it clicked. Oh my gosh. This is saying that Hassan said, I would prefer to be a loyal servant of the Imam rather than illegitimately the son of the Imam. Meaning that the group of people who were presenting him as biography were constructing him as a descendant, possibly of Nizar. And he was declining that. He was saying, nope, I'm just a loyal functionary of the Dawah. I'm not the Imam. Meaning that there was a desperate need here by that very small group to say, we need an Imam. Mm-hmm. Okay. So this division that I do of Satris and Zuhuris, the people who are okay with the concealment of the Imam and those who want the manifestation of the Imam were present right there at the beginning of Hassan al-Sabah's uh, supremacy. This group grows. The next rulers put down a raft of movements that are claiming, oh, such and such is the imam. And the text that I found is is very unique. It gives us an entree into this. It's textual evidence of this type of uh, occurrence. So the third ruler of the polity, Hassan al-Sabah, followed by Buzurgumid, and then his son, Muhammad bin Buzurgumid. Muhammad's son, Hassan, who became Hassan al-Azikrislam, had a group of people uh, gravitating towards him. He was learned, he was young, he was charismatic. And they were thinking, this is the Imam Hassan al-Sabah promised us. So his father, who's the ruler of the polity, gathers together the people at Alamut and executes 250, according to the Chronicles. Executes 250 for believing his son to be an imam. He says, I am not an imam. I am a da'i amongst the da'is, and this is my son. Whoever believes him to be the imam is irreligious. And he banishes 250 people from Alamut. The, The texts say that he made them carry the 250 dead. Alamut is a fortress. Uh, Vladimir Ivanov, in his study, uh, surveyed the fortress. It can't contain more than 300 people. It's just too small. So let's say it's from the periphery, the region around Alamut. 250 people executed and 250 banished. That's a huge number. There's not even a whisper in the other histories regional histories or uh, uh, broader uh, histories of the time. But this is something that we get out of the Nizari Chronicles that Juvaini picked up, Rashid Din wrote about, and Kashani wrote about. And then in 2013, I went to the Institute of Ismaili Studies, uh, thanks to a uh, research grant, and I acquired some manuscripts from the Institute of Ismaili Studies collection. And one of them was the Hikayat the Nasr Khosrow. I started reading it 
And initially it didn't make much sense because it says, uh, it's in the voice of Hassan al-Sabah, and it says, let me tell you a story that Nasr Khusrau told me. Again, the two people could not have been in the same place at the same time. They didn't meet and let alone exchange any religious, historical or other thought. So it's clearly a narrative here. So Nasser Khosrow is just there to kind of say, Hassan al-Sabah is an important individual. Then it goes on to tell the story about the time when it was written, I believe. I believe that it was written by the community that was banished out of Alamut. And it was a Nizari who penned this. It's preserved amongst the Nizaris. Uh, there are two copies that I found, one at the Institute and what, one at the University of Tehran in manuscripts. The narrative in this goes that, the, uh, I'll give you one short passage of it. Um, there was a prediction that Hassan, uh, Hassan Sabah had done about who the imam would be. There were three characteristics. One is he will urinate on the books. Two is um, with one stroke of a sword, he will kill two animals. And three, at this particular debate, which I'm going to tell you about in a moment, at this particular moment, he would walk in and he would have he would be throwing an orange from one hand to the other and he'd be wearing boots. So the second successor from Hassan Sabah, Muhammad bin Buzurgumid, is ruling. And apparently the next person who became the ruler, according to this narrative, was the Imam. And the ruler had killed the Imam and his 18 companions. You have to read the, the paper. Uh, it's being published uh, soon in uh, um, the British Journal of Persian Studies, Iran. The ruler killed the Imam and his 18 companions. His wife was pregnant. Then he says, take her into my household. If she gives birth to a male, he's to be killed. So the, the imam's wife is taken into the ruler's household. And lo and behold, she gives birth on the same day as the ruler's wife gives birth. And she was a believer in the imamate. So she came and swapped her, son, uh, her daughter for the son of the imam. The pregnant wife of the imam had given birth to a son, and they swap. So, for all intents and purposes, the, the ruler had a son. He was told that he had a son. He's growing up. When he's two years old, daddy's in the library. He's working in the library, and the son comes in, and he pees on the book. And daddy says, strange, and probably slaps the child and says, get out of here. These are precious books. Things go on. A few years later, he's gone hunting, the, the son. He's about 14 now. Well, actually, uh, there are two versions. Uh, he comes and pees on the books when he's two in one narrative, <laughs> and in another manuscript, he's 10. Okay? At 10, he would have gotten into serious trouble. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, so two years later, he's out hunting, and he, um, he takes down an onager a wild uh, donkey, if you will. And he, with one stroke, he kills her. And they find that it's pregnant. So lo and behold, he's killed two animals with one stroke 
of the sword. So now Muhammad bin Buzurgamid, the ruler, is thinking, you know, that prediction. So the Rafi Khan, the Nizaris are gathered, and he's saying to him, you know, that prediction the Hassan al-Sabah made. My son, he came and peed on the books, and now he's killed two animals with one stroke uh, of the sword. And they said, you fool, you just don't know. He had killed the imam because he was unaware of the true identity of the imam. The imam had been brought, the descendant of Nizar had been brought secretly to Alamut. Hassan Sabah knew it, his successor knew it, but his third successor for some reason didn't know it, according to this narrative. So as he's explaining this to the gathering, in walks in who? The boy. What's he got in his hand? He's throwing from one hand to the other. What is he throwing? Orange. An orange. And what is he wearing? Boots. Boots. <laughs> okay. So he comes in and now Muhammad bin Buzurgamid, who is the ruler of the polity, realizes this is the imam. So he falls to his feet and grabs his uh, uh, tunic and says, forgive me. And... He's told, you're not worthy of forgiveness because you killed my father and his 18 companions. And he uses the boot to crush his head and then becomes the imam and the nizar is celebrated. And there ends the narrative. Mm. The narrative ends with, it is the height of piety when one believer uh, is attuned to the belief of the other and that's attuned to the teachings of the imam. Right? So, I looked at this text, which doesn't have a date. We don't have provenance. We don't have authorship information. And I'm thinking, when could this have been written? And because of the very negative construction of Muhammad bin Buzurgamid, I suggest that it comes from this time period and written by this community that was exiled out of Alamut. And they're basically saying, death to the ruler. Mm. Okay. So it is a manifesto of Huzur, I gave it a nice uh, catchy title, <laughs> the manifesto, manifesto of the Manifestation, and they're advocating for um, the imam to be manifest. Mm. And their candidate is this Hassan. And, and lo and behold, as the Qiyama is enacted, these communities probably must have come together. With these types of narratives, you have to look at the different uh, uh, aspects. So the chronicles state that when Hassan became the ruler, they talk about his eruditeness, his charisma, and the following that he had. And when he became ruler in his own right, the first thing that he did is he freed all the prisoners. He showed mercy, okay, which is a divine act. And he enabled all those prisoners to go back to their homes if they wanted to or stay if they wished, and he provide, provided resources. So the chronicles, the Sunni chroniclers are saying Hassan, before uh, uh, enacting the Qiyama, was an erudite, charismatic, merciful individual. And yet this Nizari source is saying the Hassan killed his own father. So you have to reconcile the, the various differences. But I think this is a major find. Mm -hmm. um, it, it illuminates this period. It illuminates how 
some members of the Nizari community um, construed the transference of imamat from Cairo, where Nizar was uh, killed, to uh, northern Iran. And, uh, and so the enactment of Kiyama, which is not mentioned in the text, uh, I believe took place afterwards, uh, leads to the manifestation and the success of this group or this, their type of thinking that the imam, the soteriological figure, the eschatological figure needs to be manifest and at the helm of the community. And that's how things uh, go aright. So that text is fascinating. And I found a manuscript tradition of this in Badakhshan. So the the two papers that have come out of uh, this research eventually will uh, become a book once I consolidate the research with the manuscript tradition in, in Badakhshan. Um, get maybe step uh, step out a little bit, uh, zoom out, I should say, and, and take, if you could discuss briefly the the nature of the, the Nazari Ismaili's relationship with the Seljuks. You know, what were some of the political, uh, intellectual, religious dynamics between the two? So, um, the the biography of Hassan al-Sabah in the Chronicles, um, there are two, as I told you, there are two uh, narratives, the Sargazasht uh, uh, narrative and then the three, three schoolfellows narratives. And they are kind of uh, interlocked with the assassination in 1092 of Nizam al-Mulk. Mm-hmm. It's uh, claimed by the Nizaris in, in these texts, but um, scholarship uh, as early as the 1400s, al-Dahabi is claiming that the Nizaris weren't really responsible and Nizari might have carried it out, but it was court intrigue. Uh, Nizam al-Mulk in his last years wrote uh, the Siyar al-Muluk, uh, the Book of Government. And this has been looked at as a mirror for princes and as a uh, a very important Islamicate book on government. In the text, he, he tells us that he'd written um, about 40 chapters uh, on the orders of his uh, protege, Malik Shah, the uh, Saljuk Sultan. And then in the last days, he added 11 chapters. So 52 chapters in all. I hope the numbers add up. <laughs> uh, he added 11 chapters. One of them, he he says, you shouldn't follow the lead of the women. Okay, Tarkan Khatun might have been the target, Malik Shah's wife, very powerful woman who was uh, involved in political decisions. And the others are strongly anti-Shi and advising the ruler not to um, align himself with the ulama of Iran, but rather the ulama of, uh, from the east, from Central Asia, where the Saljuks had come from, suggesting that the ulama in Iran and Iraq were probably colored by their association with Shiism. And he pointed at certain figures in the hierarchy of the the sultanate who were heretical, which tells us that there was a serious penetration of Ismailism in the Saljuk uh, hierarchy to the point that we can suggest now with my research that uh, Berkiaruk 
possibly might have dallied with Nizari Ismailism. Mm. Right? Uh, whether he accepted it or not, is, uh, we don't have any evidence to establish, but he had strong alliance and relations. So the, I think the relations have not been looked at. There is only one article by Carol Hillenbrand uh, from Edinburgh University that even talks about relations between the Saljuks and, and the Nizaris. Mostly, there's a conflictual relationship that has been um, focused on. And as I mentioned, the fortresses that the Nizaris had were on major trade routes. One of them which I believe Berkiaruk might have yielded to the Nizaris, uh, was right outside of Isfahan, which is the Saljuk capital. So the, Isfahan, uh, the, the uh, Saljuks were very much challenged by the threat of the Nizaris. The Nizaris were trying to expand uh, both their territorial and their sociopolitical uh, reach. And that was a contention for the Abbasids, uh, who at this time were just titular heads and maybe just governed uh, their palaces or uh, uh, the extent of Baghdad. The the real rulers were the Saljuks. So in all these interests, the ulama were opposed to the Nizari encroachments, the, uh, the Abbasids were opposed to the Nizari encroachments, and the Saljuks were threatened and challenged by this. Eventually, they do settle into a, a period of uh, less violence by the, uh, by the time of the Sultan Sanjar, who dies in 1157. And the Nizari polity is going to exist with little exchange of territory for another uh, hundred years almost until the Mongols come and destroy it. So, so there is a give and take uh, in terms of territory. There's a push and pull in terms of uh, political and uh, uh, military control. But there's also the, uh, the socio-religious aspect mm -hmm. that, that is negotiated. Mm, thank you. So how did the Nizari polity in Iran come to an end? The Nizari polity came to an end uh, in 1256. Um, if, if we go back to the Satris and Zuharis, the Qiyamas declared in 1164, and uh, Hassan is assassinated, Hassan al Azikr Islam is assassinated in 1166, and much of the uh, doctrinal elaboration took place in his son's reign. But his grandson, interestingly, uh, disavowed his Ismaili uh, attachments and uh, uh, became a vassal of the Abbasids and adopted Sunni Islam. Jalal bin Hassan was his name. And he allied with various of uh, the Saljuk uh, uh, commanders and uh, gained a lot of territory through this alliance and served their uh, political and military interests. It is at this time that Genghis Khan was invading the Islamicate domains. 1219 to 1221 is the time that Genghis Khan invaded. And Jalal bin Hassan was the first of the Muslim rulers on the west of uh, the uh, Oxus River, which is today called uh, the Panj in Tajikistan or the Amudarya. 
as the the forces of Genghis Khan were crossing the Amudarya, Jalal bin Hassan sent emissaries and an alliance was formed. So in 1220, you can say that an alliance existed. But in 1256, the Mongols destroyed this former ally. Most people focus on the end. I focused on the 30 years and trying to establish what was going on. And being a student of uh, John Woods of Chicago, who is the preeminent, one of the preeminent scholars of the Mongols, and the multidisciplinary approaches that we use, um, one of the things that's critical is to look at where trade takes place. The Ismaili polities, uh, the Castellan polity, is sitting along massive trade routes. And the Mongols were very interested in trade. The invasions of Islamic domains was because uh, the Khwarazm Shahs had appropriated uh, Mongol wealth and executed their traders. So is it possible that the Mongols were allied with the Nizaris because the Nizaris would provide protection for trade plying through the Islamicate domains into the Mongol domains. Over time, this alliance declines. And in my work, I have uh, mapped out how uh, the Mongols had come to destroy the Khwarazm Shahs. And at a point, the Nizaris become vassals of the Khwarazm Shahs. There's a suggestion in my work that there was a double cross. The Nizaris, uh, there was a Nizari em uh, emissary accompanying the uh, Khwarazm Shah and had sent a message to the Mongols of the location. It was intercepted. I think that's one of the causes belli one of the major reasons. Mm -hmm. Then the Nizaris are supposed to have assassinated a Mongol uh, official in Georgia. And there were continuous complaints from uh, Sunni dignitaries in the Mongol administration to the great Khan in, in Mongolia against the Nizaris. So by the time of uh, uh, Manke's rule, uh, relations had collapsed already. What I suggest is that the protection of the trade route was not necessary anymore because the invading army was being replaced by forces of occupation. So Hulagu, the grandson of Genghis Khan, was sent out by his brother Monke Khan to invade the Islamicate domains and he was to destroy first and foremost the polity of the Nizaris and then go on to take the the lures, and and uh, he also uh, went on to take uh, the Abbasid capital. So Hulagu decapitated uh, in 1256 the Nizari polity, and in 1258 he decapitated the Abbasid uh, caliphate. The Nizaris had fought for 160 years with the Saljuks, and their fortresses were impregnable. They had been able to maintain their independence and expand. But they capitulated. The ruler at the time, Ruknadan Kursha, capitulated without a major fight, skirmishes. My thinking is that 
he and some of the some of his advisors some of the leading dignitaries were expecting to reset the alliance holagu accepted and received rukhdan karasha in fact he allowed him to go to mongolia he went to mongolia and the great khan said how can i accept uh, great khan declined to uh, to accept in, uh, him in his presence and turned him back saying your two fortresses gird ku which is a major fortress in in iran your two fortresses are still holding out i will your your uh, vassalage is unacceptable uh he was sent back and orders were given to uh kill him and to annihilate the nizaris so the chronicles report that he was killed in the khangai mountains on the way back from mongolia to iran and uh 10000 here 12000 there uh the ismailis were massacred and again this began a period of satr of concealment the imam the dawa and the community was in concealment again thank you um so we started talking a bit about how you approach uh the sources that are available um can you maybe expand a bit or um say more about some of your digital humanities methods and your double narrative analysis the two major approaches i've mentioned already that i look at factionalism within the nizaris which other scholars have not focused on and uh the other aspect that i uh I find that is very significant is I look at the relations so the relations between the Nizars and the Saljuks the relations between the Nizars and the Mongols these are important um a th- uh, another uh pillar of my work is that I look at the genre of the text historical writing at this time um the especially persian historical writing was writing about dynasties so each one of the rulers within the dynasty would have an account and there was a particular framework and paradigm in which this type of writing was done much of it possibly was as harry you mentioned uh mirrors for princes i believe that the nizaris uh, ismailis generally did not write history in this fashion if they wrote history at all mm. and that is a point of um debate and argument between myself and other uh, other scholars in ismaili studies um they did not write history qua history tariq what historical content we get is in manakib and sira biography and uh the uh talking about the greatness of of certain individuals so these are snippetized and taken and constructed into the persian historical writing framework that uh, juvaini kash and rashiduddin and kashani did and so i i take those generic dif- make those generic differences the second important thing that i did is um as i was translating i transcribed rashiduddin and looking at the patterns i then subjected it to uh using qualitative research software a tams analyzer actually a ver- a free software for for the mac uh, environment and what i did in there is uh go and break down narrative segments so what's this sentence about what is this section about down to the word level so when you look at 
the term assassin, it's there because katala is the most common important word that occurs in word frequencies because they have a hit list of 147 hits that were carried out in the first three reigns. So if you put that aside and you look at the narratives, I found that 50% of the narratives are about war, battles, and if you correlate the doctrinal, that 50% is tied in. So the debates that are taking place are taking place in terms of conflict. So to give you an example, when a fortress is besieged, at nearing the end of the, fort, uh, uh, the, the siege, a, an alim, a Sunni alim would be sent up to debate with the Ismailis. So you figure, you know, you, you go out and besiege a fortress sometime in the spring, through the summer, and now things are getting difficult. You, you don't have enough uh, supplies and so on. And you're saying, all right, what do we do? So who do they send? They send a Sunni alim up there to go and have a debate saying, your know, imam is illegitimate. And the debate takes place. So we have some of those. I started thinking, why are they doing this? Mm-hmm. The alim is going up there to do a reconnoiter. He's part of the military establishment. The Saljuks of Coop opted, they've co-opted the Sunni ulama. Okay? We know that the Ottomans co-opted the Sunni ulama. This is in the 16th century, but here is an example in the 12th century. Right? So he's checking out what is their morale, what is the supply of their food, what's the disease sort of situation, meaning he's giving intelligence to the Saljuk establishment, Saljuk uh, besiegers, can they hold out or should we just pull back and come back next year? Right? So this was possible through the data analysis because putting uh, these narratives side by side, calculating the frequency and looking at the patterns. So these types of things have been very, very productive. And I think this is the way of philology in the 21st century. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Um, Going back to the challenges, we, we talked a little bit about uh, uh, the challenges of studying early Nazari Ismaili history. You know, you, we talked about the, the paucity of sources, the biases found in both original sources and modern uh, scholarship. Uh, as students of Islamic studies, what lessons uh, can we learn from the reexamination of these assumptions and biases? Mm-hmm. So the biases exist there. And as you've seen, I've kind of uh, done this forensic analysis where I uh, look at the paradigmatic approaches and separate them out and and go and analyze what and why is being said in the uh, chronicles and then in the fragments of Nizari resources that we have. We have uh, uh, a handful of doctrinal sources and potentially as the uh, as the archives, individual archives, as well as institutional archives become available and more scholarship focuses on them, we'll potentially have more. I have discovered, or rather uncovered, two or three and have edited and uh, translated them. So one is the paucity of sources, as you mentioned. But the biases that existed in the Persian and Arabic historical texts have been carried through into early scholarship. More recent scholarship has uh, been a little bit more reasonable. Um, Farhad Daftari, I think, is 
uh, a turning point because a he has been uh, positive in his uh, understandings uh, of of Ismailism, not negative, and um, also he's a Muslim. All the scholars that I uh, named before were not Muslim, so there's a shifting in terms of who's doing the work as well. There are Muslim scholars, there are Ismaili scholars, there are Nizari scholars who are studying their own tradition, as well as non-Ismaili scholarship. So I think this is a change in direction. But in terms of the student coming at this, I think it's a very important area. Why? Because the Ismailis are looking at the entire history of Ismailism are a significant part of Islamicate thought. You cannot conceptualize Islamicate thought without Shiism, without Ismailism, because much of the development of Islamic thought is dialogical. Mm -hmm. There are debates taking place. So if you are looking at just Sunni thought as it's uh, transmitted, then you're missing a leg on the stool. It's unbalanced. So uh, scholarship needs to address that. And one of the things in my, uh, in my books I, I'm trying to do is not just study uh, the Nizari components, but I wish to place them in the wider tableau of the religious uh, developments, the historical developments, the political developments that are taking place. So not an idiosyncratic separate, but part of the continuum of development. I think that's, that's an important uh, perspective that uh, uh, students coming to this field should uh, uh, take up. So what's, what's ahead for your research? What's coming up? Well, this year I'm working on completing, uh, you know, uh, uh, translating from the dissertation to English, uh, <laughs> uh, the the biography of Hassan Asaba, and I'm hoping that I'll have the opportunity to continue my research on um, Kiyama, on eschatology, on Islamicate notions of eschatology, which will inform my next book on uh, on the Kiyama. And uh, I also hope to write a book on uh, the Hekayat and Nasr Khosrau, mm. which, uh, the, which I think has two components. First is the text itself and its textual history. But the other element that I want to bring in, and uh, this is something that uh, I'm very carefully navigating and need to do a lot of work on, is the concept that is very much uh, explored in South Asian studies, post-colonial South Asian studies, is this idea of subaltern studies. Mm -hmm. Because what I've described is the Nizaris and the Ismailis in general have been construed as subaltern mm -hmm. in the same way that the colonials construed the Indians as subaltern individuals. They constructed an identity for the Indians. They then uh, executed the policies accordingly, and then they wrote the history about the subaltern group, an imagined community, if you will. The same sort of thing is happening in pre-modern times, and I hope to introduce this type of approach uh, of uh, construing minority communities that are marginalized, demonized, and otherized. So I, I, 
I, I hope to do that. And the other thing that I want to do is also focus on uh, my work in Central Asia. I did some um, ethnographic work there, and I hope to uh, uh, have the opportunities to be able to build uh, on that. Well, thank you. Thank you. This was delightful. I'm uh, grateful for uh, your ears, and I'm grateful, of course, to the Al-Walid program and CSWR. You can learn more about early Nazari Ismaili history in Dr. Shiraz Hajiani's upcoming book, The Life and Times of Our Master, and at his website, islamigate.net. This is the Harvard Islamica podcast. I'm Mariam Kazmi. Thanks for listening. Thank you.